Welcome to the Adventures of Alice and Bob, the podcast where we shine a light on the people shaping the cybersecurity landscape today. I'm delighted to be joined on this episode by Jason Haddix, a long-standing member of the security community with a history of successful exploits in bug bounty programs, gaining the number one spot in Bug Crowd in 2014. These days, Jason is hacker in charge at Budobot, a company that helps organizations shift their security from a reactive state to a proactive state, using ethical hackers and security engineers to simulate real-world attacks against the customer's environments and help them to understand the threats that they're facing today. To quote Jason's own Twitter bio, he has 18 years hacking experience, 10 years leadership experience, and is ex-Citrix, ex-Redspin, ex-Fortify, ex-HP, ex-Bug Bounty, and ex-Ubisoft. Now, the reason I'm quoting Jason's Twitter bio at you is that he's a great sharer of information and resources. So make sure you check out at jhaddix on Twitter, jhaddix on GitHub, and the Executive Offense newsletter, and of course, budobot.com, B-U-D-D-O-B-O-T.com. So Jason, welcome to the podcast today. Thanks for having me, James. Really appreciate it. And whereabouts are you joining us from today? So I'm based out of Colorado. Uh, I'm in Aurora uh, with my uh, my family, so my wife and my three children. Fantastic. And how did you first become interested in technology and computers? Oh, wow. I mean, I have been uh, playing with tech for, you know, pretty much my, my whole life. So um, I think when I was a, a small kid, um, I think I took apart a calculator just to see what I could, uh, you know, what the insides were like. And I think I fell in love with uh, everything to do with, you know, computers and tech probably from that moment on. But, um, but yeah, I mean, I've, I've always been a computer kid, uh, always into video games, always into uh, topics around tech and stuff like that uh, ever since I was in grade school. So um, that was kind of like fell into it and then never left. <laughs> I always like to ask people, what, what was the first computer that you uh, started off on? So I started off on a, um, well, boy, uh, I used my neighbor's laptop. So my neighbor's, uh, my neighbor's father was a doctor and he had, you know, probably one of the first IBM laptops that uh, I don't know what the spec was for it. Uh, came with a huge docking system. My, my first computer I owned myself was a 486. Um, it was an Acer, an Acer model 486. So, um, Loved that machine, uh, rode it into the sunset, and then uh, I remember uh, several Christmases after I got a AMD Athlon, which was when the Processor Wars, the first version of the Processor Wars where AMD had kind of won. Um, I got an AMD Athlon, loved that machine for so long. It was great. So yeah, those are some of my, my highlight ones, my first ones. So those early computers led you into the world of the internet and the world of Shadow Crew. So can you tell us a little bit about how that, that, that came about? Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, I mean, my history, you know, it's probably a familiar one to a lot of people, um, you know, on the on the, in, the first little kind of burgeoning internet, I think. Um, and, uh, you know, so, so when the internet was, you know, first coming out, you know, piracy and bulletin boards and uh, was part of the internet, right? I mean, you, you had your modem, you dialed into places and uh, you were in chat rooms and you were also, you know, sharing materials. And, um, you know, back in the, back in those days, you know, it wasn't even really thought of as piracy. That's just kind of like one of the basic, basic tenets of the internet. Um, but, um, but as it grew, uh, you know, I grew uh, when I was about, I would say 20, 20 or yeah, close to 21. I was so close to 21. Um, I wanted uh, a fake ID basically. And so, um, I did a Darknet Diaries um, episode on this, but the the story is is that I got a fake ID from a friend of mine in college to just go to bars locally, and I got it from him, and it was uh, really poor quality, and I got busted at a bar trying to use it just to get in to have drinks with um, some of my older friends, and uh, I got really frustrated, really, really frustrated, which is kind of like a, um, you know, a, a thing that happens, and so I went on this tear, you know, I was like, well, you know, I'll just, I'll just try to do this myself. Like it, it can't be that hard to make a fake ID. Uh, and so, you know, I started doing research and I, I ended up landing on, you know, what back then was the earliest form of, you know, the dark web. Um, you know, it wasn't, wasn't behind tour or anything like that. It was just forums on the internet. And so this was Carter's market shadows, shadow crew, counterfeit library. These were some of the first, um, the first underground sites that were trading illicit information about, you know, all kinds of stuff. So, 
and from that you went on to then start as a as a minor vendor on on uh, shadow crew on those marketplaces is that right yeah so i um i was uh i, mean, I don't know if i would call myself like a, a super active vendor I, I definitely participated in the forum aspect where i was trading information i kind of treated it like an art project honestly um you know i i ended up you know investing in all of the um printers the laminates the uv inks the um powders the everything that goes along with building a, a good fake id because when i do something uh, you know my uh, adhd doesn't allow me to do it halfway so um i definitely got really good and was sharing tips and tricks on the forums and stuff like that but i wasn't selling many ids in the forums um but they really did appreciate me on the forums for uh, the amount i was sharing so um yeah i would i would talk with other vendors and so there's there's really three components of that ecosystem in the dark web it's the um it is the uh hackers who are hacking the credit card numbers from websites usually uh database dumps out of web hacks that they do at least, they, at least it was then or network hacks uh and then there's the uh, carters who are taking those dumps and encoding them on a fake credit card that they make um, but they also need an ID to match their fake name when they go to use the credit card at like a Best Buy or something like that. Uh, and it remains this it remains this way to this day. Um, is there's just like this trinity of people who make uh, you know all that stuff work. And so uh, me, you know, silly kid trying to like learn how to make fake IDs just to to get into a bar. Uh, I was a valuable commodity to them because I you know was sharing tips and tricks on part of that kind of trinity of uh you know of what they did and so i got to meet a lot of uh, on the forums a lot of the carters and um a lot of the uh hackers on the other side and so that's when i really start get i started getting exposed to web hacking on shadow crew was um was during those days and how did you then take that kind of early interest and you you're starting to learn about these new techniques there's this information around there's people willing to share with you how did you then take that and sort of transition into a, a career as a, a penetration tester yeah, so I was going to school. Um, I was going to a community college uh, in my hometown, and um, I was already on kind of a networking track there. I was on a Cisco networking track. Uh, I knew I wanted to do something in IT. I didn't know what, though, and I was learning all this stuff. And um, it was just when web hacking was starting to become like a thing, right? So uh, Rainforest Puppies' uh, first paper on um, SQL injection had just come out. Um, like earlier that year, and um, I was learning all these these crazy things, like this bug called cross-site scripting, and like you know, like there was still remote, you know, there was still RCE remote code execution in web server software. You know, like Apache would still back then have a RCE every once in a while. So uh, I was learning about you know like all kinds of stuff, and then uh, Shadow Crew, the forum that I was primarily on, got busted by. Uh, basically, the Secret Service was the first um, three-letter, or the not three-letter, but the first agency to really take a stand against kind of the underground forums, and Shadow Crew was the first one we busted. So um, basically, a whole bunch of people I knew on these forums got arrested in like a massive worldwide um, raid uh, across um, the United States, Canada, Europe, uh, you know, basically everywhere, a coordinated raid. And you know, I was I was such a small you know fry and and wasn't really participating in the sale too much of the forums that, you know, I wasn't someone who you know was targeted for that, but um, definitely you know started to scare me straight a little bit. Um, you know, I went uh, I went from there um, back to school and was trying to focus, and then I took an elective course at my college, and there was this elective course called Ethical Hacking and Network Defense, and um, my teacher at the time. Uh, I was taking the course and I was like, hey, you know, like, I, I like the course, I like the ideas in the course, um, you know, the things that we're learning, but it's already horribly outdated based on what I know from being on these forums. Um, and I started to tell him, you know, like, this is the kind of stuff that's happening right now. And these are the attacks that are used in modern day. And he's like, you know, you can get, you can do this as a job. And I'm like, well, what do you mean? And he's like, there's this thing called, you know, he's telling me this thing called the penetration testing. And I'm like, what is that? And, um, so he basically, you know, told me that, you know, I can get paid legit for using these skills and learning about this. Um, and your job would to be find these vulnerabilities and write reports about them. And um, so I took that course and, um, you know, did really well and then really never looked back. From that point on, it was uh, I was, 
you know, I begged, borrowed, and stole everything I could on the topic of penetration testing in every facet of it, web, mobile, um, you know, later on, uh, IoT. Uh, I mean, basically everything that exists, uh, you know, just uh, consuming all the content that exists, writing about it, and becoming part of the communities uh, back then, the legit communities that were, uh, you know, propping up around DEF CON and, and things like that. And so that's kind of how I, um, I started my launch into my, my real career. And and how was that like first steps in the career? Because you know, like you were saying, these were kind of almost relatively new things for companies to be taking on at a certain point. Like you didn't even know that there was the the role of penetration tester, and a lot of companies were still kind of feeling their way out with with that. Did you find you had a lot of room to just go off and explore new technologies, or were you kind of very much that we've got this project, it's got a very narrow scope, you need to focus on on this piece? You know, I I lucked out because. Um... I mean, any good career, right, is a combination of, of skill and luck, right? So uh, I, I lucked out uh, because there was a small consultancy uh, right outside my town um, called Redspin. And um, and so I had been working at, at this time for Citrix uh, just doing IT work. I had, I had landed an IT job, which was my foot in the door for just IT, which I was so grateful for, learned so much about just general IT. And I... They had it. Like, they were lucky enough to have a security team, which not many companies had like a dedicated security team at, at this time, but Citrix did. And um, I got to know them too. And I would just bring them new stuff as like the lowly IT person that I was. I would just bring them like new hacks and new stuff. And I'd be like, hey, did you know that we're vulnerable to this? And they're like, who is this kid? Like, tell him to go away. Um, but uh, I got to know them and I got a little bit of exposure. And then I used, you know, my conversations with them and some things that I fixed fixed at Citrix to um, interview at the, at a job at Redspin, which was a full time auditing and penetration testing um, consultancy, and it was really, uh, I mean, when I call it like a consultancy, I mean it it was you know like there was no more than four engineers when I started, um, and I got really lucky because they you know they serviced in California they serviced most of the banks in California at that time. Um, most of most of the like mid-sized to large credit unions and uh, and some of the multinational banks too. And so I got to work on this kind of amazing team and the people on this team now have gone on to do crazy stuff like, you know, lead Apple's security program. And like, uh, I don't know what magic soup happened there because um, because the, the people from that you know, small little garage that we worked out of are now all over the industry leading it. But um, but yeah, I got to work as uh, as part of a stellar team and we taught each other and, you know, we played in the DEF CON quals together, the DEF CON uh, CTF qualifiers and stuff like that. And um, really got to be in this environment for, uh, for a few years that was just rapid learning. Um, and it was still at the burgeoning time of transitioning from many pen testers at that time were network only. So they were very used sure. to using, you know, something like Nessus and, um, and scanning stuff and then actually having service-based exploits. Um, you know, at that time, still a lot of buffer overflows, like very generic stack-based buffer overflows. Um, and we were transitioning into web where like people were like, oh, you can break in through the website. Um, and so I got to help Redspin build that methodology and, um, it was great. It was great to have the supporting like team uh, who was all about it. And I've got some great stories from then. But um, uh, yeah, that's kind of where it was. Well, well, speaking of great stories and learning quickly on the job, one of the things I came across when doing the research for this was that you worked uh, in a red team and you accidentally triggered an emergency response in L.A. So maybe you could tell us a little bit about uh, about how that activity came about and, and what happened there. Yeah, absolutely. So one of the things I, I do is I scrub I scrub obviously the name and any any identifying information, but um, I do like to kind of share some of the better stories, you know, in, in my career. And I've had a long career, so it's not that I have like, you know, the best stories. I just have a long career, so I, you know, you, you accumulate some. <laughs> uh, but one of my one of my stories is, uh, you know, we were um, we were contracted at uh, one of my jobs to do um, a red team assessment against uh, a medical alert company, and this is the this is the kind of company that you know your um, you know, your parents or your grandparents, you know, would wear one of these devices so that if they fell or something happened, that they could pull the pin on it or press a button on it, and it will alert emergency response to bring, um, you know, a, a private chartered, like, um, ambulance to their house, basically. 
And so uh, there's there's several of these vendors and uh, we were contracted test one and it was a, a black box penetration test, red team uh, assessment. So meaning that I didn't really, I didn't really get given any, um, any directions going in. It was like, just see what you can do basically. So, uh, so I spent, uh, you know, a majority of the, you know, beginning of my time doing reconnaissance, which, uh, is my, is one of my specialties in this, uh, in this industry is finding all of the stuff that they had online. Um, especially the stuff that they didn't know they had online. And so, uh, I ended up stumbling upon, um, some servers of theirs that I could confirm were theirs. Um, and, uh, one of them was a development server. And um, I knew that because it was in the, the name of the subdomain. It was dev something, right? So, um, and on that server were a bunch of what looked to be um, test APIs uh, for, you know, I'm, I was guessing it had to do something with, you know, one of their web apps, but they weren't very strictly named. Um, they weren't anything that I could really like, you know, in my head, uh, understand what these calls meant for this API. So, you know, as a web hacker, you know, you, you take every web app you have and you crawl it and you try to find its complete scope and then you you fuzz it basically you throw payloads at it and you try to exploit it in different ways sql injection um you know uh cross-site scripting local file includes all types of OWASP top 10 web bugs and so you're just trying to play with these urls until something falls out um or you you get a hunch that you know there is some kind of indicative vulnerability there and so i was playing with you know this uh the site i had found and i was relatively um i was relatively feeling okay about it i was starting to you know feel like hey i was getting output out of the the api it was giving me geolocation what i thought it was giving me at the time was just geolocation of of clients um of the company and i thought it was just fake data I mean, it turned out, and this still happens to this day, that it actually wasn't fake data. It was live data of their customer base. They had connected um, their dev um, to the same database that their prod was, um, their their web app, uh, their web API, uh, and the fuzzing that I had started doing on some of these endpoints um, had started to trigger um, the medical response um, to. Um, a small subsection of the city of Los Angeles, because uh, because that is where this API was was hitting was um, was that locale. So uh, I was you know I was doing my work and eventually like towards the end of the day I, I got a call on my cell phone. Um, you know you have emergency contact information. The client can contact you if anything happens. I said hey did you happen to you know um, did you happen to find anything? And I was like well I haven't really found anything. I've been you know, like testing, enumerating, fuzzing a little bit, but I haven't found too much. And they're like, they're like, well, the fleet of ambulances for most of the city just got called and sent out. Um, can you tell us what you were doing? And I was like, well, there's this dev this dev app. It has a API on it. You know, it was unauthenticated. I was fuzzing it. And they're like, oh yeah, that triggered, you know, all of the ambulances basically we had in our fleet to go out to all of our customers. Can you please stop? I was like, yes, of course, I'll stop. Um, and so, you know, we figured out that, you know, the devs had connected this, um, you know, this development site to the production uh, instance of the API as well. And um, and they were managed to give a call like a um, to like, you know, all the, the driver dispatch to basically bring everybody back. But uh, that was a, a pretty crazy one. Um, you know, like I ended up finding some bugs on that red team assessment that were really great. Obviously that's a big one is you shouldn't have that on the internet unauthenticated. Um, but I will never forget that call of like, yeah, uh, you know, you need to stop right away because, uh, you know, the ambulances are out right now. So, uh, that is, that is the time I put the city of, of Los Angeles on, a, on alert a little bit, <laughs> or at least everybody's parents. <laughs> and, and how did the company, like the company you're working for at the time and the company you were doing the test for, how did they actually handle it? Were they, were they gracious about it or were they angry about it? Yeah, so um, this company in specific, the customer was great. They were they were like, yeah, this never should have been on the internet. Thank God you found it, you know, and not somebody else. Um, so, you know, it can be hit or miss with companies, right? Like some yeah. companies really don't want you to find great stuff. They just want to have their pen test and, you know, and go about their business and hopefully no criticals get found or something like that. Uh, and, you know, and if you do find something critical, they can respond in the worst ways, either on a pen test or a bug bounty or a red team. This specific customer, though, was amazing. And they were like, 
And they contracted with us for many, many years after this um, and uh, did many, many more tests. So uh, yeah, I, I enjoyed working with them and, and that was a good experience. So. And, and did it change the way you now think about things? Do you, do you approach things in a different way, especially when there's, obviously if you're dealing with systems where there's, you know, people's lives are sort of connected up to it, that can be a very different pen testing engagement to, you know, a more simple web app for an online retailer perhaps. So how yeah. how do you, would you now approach that to, to try and de-risk it as much, much as possible? So for... Uh, you know, for that one, I was I was so young and new, right? <laughs> so I think that um, I didn't really think to ask the right questions in the scoping call. But nowadays, you know, if the mission of the company was anything related to health, I, I ask a barrage of questions, you know, like, um, is there any chance that anything that I could hit could, you know, cause like um, harm or anything like that? You know, um, you should have some of these types of questions in your scoping document, right, to make sure that uh, even, you know, even if uh, they think that they're all good and that there shouldn't be any way that you can do X, Y, and Z, um, you know, you want to you wanna avoid. And so, you know, for an engagement like this, it probably would have been much better as, you know, what we call, a, you know, like a full knowledge or crystal box penetration test, right? Where they would have been like, okay, here's the full architecture of how this thing works, you know, like how our business works. Here's the types of servers you're going to see. Everything's handled via these eight, these web APIs that we've built um, you know, the, the devices, you know, make a call over like cellular data to this API. And like, if they would have told me that I would have known right away when I was testing this, this thing and be like, oh, okay. So this is the thing that the, you know, the, um, alerters connect to, even though it says dev, I probably shouldn't be fuzzing it aggressively or spidering it aggressively. Um, and if it would have been a clear box test, I probably would have given them a call and just been like, Hey, I found this. It doesn't have any authentication. Do you want me to continue testing this? And maybe we could have caught it at that point. We could have been like, Oh yeah, first of all, that should be authenticated, even though it's a development server. And hopefully we would have got to the point in the conversation where it's like, Oh, actually our development server is connected to our production system as well. Um, and it actually does execute, um, the calling of the fleet of the, the ambulances. So, um, yeah, so I mean, you would hope in a in a crystal box full knowledge test that you could get to some of those places uh, with just you know talking with the tech team, um, and that's probably how I would approach a you know a test with you know a more sensitive medical device manufacturer these days. Yeah, would would there be like a, a line you'd just go? I, I'm not I'm not touching that system because either the customer doesn't really know what's going on with it, or it's just such high risk to a patient there that you just wouldn't engage. Yeah, I mean, there's not much I won't hack, honestly. Um, <laughs> I usually draw the line on, actually, I'm one of those testers that personally draws the line around, oh, I have at least until now um, uh, drawn the line at social. Um, so I I understand that social engineering is one of the uh, biggest target, and I'm talking about uh, voice, you know, like vishing, basically. Um, so we have people on our team that do that, but I won't do it. Earlier in my career, I did a, um, a social engagement where I did some vishing and um, the person who failed the vishing campaign or a couple people who failed the vishing campaign for the client that I was working on got fired um, from the engagement. And so I just, I didn't want to be responsible for anybody losing their job. So uh, I don't do social anymore, but as far as the medical stuff, no, I just make sure to do a lot of um, architecture questions before I do it now and just say, hey, if you want me to test this MRI machine, I don't want to test one that's hooked up in a hospital where someone's going to be using it while I'm trying to hack it, right? Um, or I don't, you know, like when I go into a hospital network, we spend a lot of time understanding where we're going to be at in the network and what we can and can't do and what the layout of the network looks like. We spend a ton more time on reconnaissance and enumeration than anything, just to make sure we don't bring anything down. We're so careful when it comes to uh, testing those those networks that have to do with um, very, very sensitive uh, missions, basically. And as well, you just mentioned that you, you have tried this sort of social engineering stuff in the past, but that's, that's not your bag now. But I understand you've also done quite a bit of physical penetration testing in the past. And I've seen stories of breaking into banks wearing thrift store shirts, blow up dolls, falling through roofs. So maybe you yeah. could share some of the, the highs and some, maybe some of the lows of physical pen testing as a career. Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, you know, when I was when I was getting in uh, two of my jobs, um, you know, every once in a while you'll get 
a full scope test, which includes physical. Um, the client will want us, you know, to go to, you know, wherever. I mean, most of our stuff was web or network um, testing, but every once in a while you'd have a customer who'd want a full scope red team. And so we would incorporate, you know, physical. And so uh, I actually got the opportunity to go back to one of the jobs I previously worked at in my IT career to do their um, their red team engagement. And um, so this is the, you know, the blow up doll story um, that was on Darknet Diaries and some other places I've told it. But um, basically they had, you know, uh, man trap style doors. So a set of doors on the outside that you could key card into and then another set of doors on the inside. Um, and uh, the inside doors, when you left the building as an employee, um, were automatically unlocked by a motion sensor, basically. And I knew this from having worked there. And so, you know, we would um, we would do all of our web hacking during the day, and then we'd go to the campus at night. Uh, usually, when the security guard was changing um, shift duty, we had a, a window of about like 45 minutes where there was really no one on duty, or he was taking lunch, and someone else was going to come on. Um, and so. What I needed was something to trigger the, you know, would be to get far enough under the door um, to trigger um, the motion sensor on the other side that usually triggered when someone was leaving the building, because then I wouldn't need a key. It would just trigger the motion sensor and unlock the door. And so, um, you know, I've seen so many other pen testers say they do this different ways. So the smart way to do it would have been to um, to use an aerosol can. Actually, you can turn a an air duster upside down and um, and shoot out the kind of condensed air that comes out of that um, through the door, um, through the small door latch, and then it'll get far enough to trigger the motion sensor. And that's how people like um, who do this for a full time job, you know, all they do is physical pen testing like um, Deviant and there's some other really popular ones in kind of the DEF CON community. Um, they have some of these cooler tricks. Back then, um, one of the things that we had, you know, like in our arsenal was the blow up doll. And so we had a, um, you know, a life-size-ish blow-up doll where the um, where the place where you blow it up, like you know, like you would blow up a punching bag or a beach ball or anything like that, was on the foot. And so what you'd do is you'd shim this flat, depressed blow-up doll under the door. Uh, you'd get it started with a like a hanger or a putty knife or something like that to to get under, and you'd push it as far as you could, and then you would start blowing up the doll and it would inflate on the other side. Um, and so you're just face to the ground blowing up this doll looking completely ridiculous um, until you hoped it got big enough to trigger the motion sensor and you would wiggle it around and um, and it did. And so, um, you know, as part of that test, it triggered the motion sensor. We were able to get through both sets of doors with the same trick. Um, and then uh, we were in and from there it was a, a walk in the park once you were in you know, people's computers were still left logged in. You know, we had complete access to the local network. Um, we eventually got credentials to let us into the server room. Um, and then, you know, we were able to put sticky notes in some of the servers saying, hey, we were here and um, everything was forfeit. So that was uh, that was the blow up doll uh, trick that we used a couple times there. So, I mean, the idea that you were buying blow up dolls for research purposes and claiming the embarking company <laughs> expenses is you must, that must be one of the few industries and careers where you can legitimately do that. So uh, it's yeah. a fantastic example of just a bit of hacker ingenuity there to get around uh, the system. So that was obviously a great success. You, you, you got in there, you, you know, you sticky noted the server saying we were here. Ha ha. What about some of the low points? You know, what what because when people tell these stories of physical pen tests, it's often very exciting and glamorous. And actually, the reality, especially some of the recon side of things, can be a, a lot less glamorous than people expect, perhaps. Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, as part of physical pen testing, it's it's not all roses. Um, and so, a couple of the the stories that I tell is, um, you know, when I was a low man on the totem pole and we had physicals um, with our engagements. You know, sometimes the weather doesn't work with you, right? So it would be raining, and um, several of the banks that we did physicals for, um, you know, be raining. And part of the physical is dumpster diving. Like you, you would you would never imagine how much you get from going through a company's trash. It is, it is crazy. How many times I found working credentials or PII or just a whole bunch of stuff um, that helped me on a a test, like a software based, you know, pen test um by dumpster diving but when you're dumpster diving you're 
sometimes in the dumpster, right? There's no way to like just pull out the bags from the, the trash. You got to get in there because there's bags and bags and bags of stuff you have to get in. And um, so dumpster diving in the rain is one of my, my least favorite things to do. And I've had to do a couple times because um, you're, you're wet. Um, it makes everything that's sticky already more sticky. It makes everything that's smelly already more smelly. Um, usually it ruins your whole day when you're trying to do it. So, um, you know, that's a big one. You know, if you're lucky enough to, you know, have the infrastructure set up, you just jump in there, grab as many bags as you can and set them in a truck or a van that you have and then take off and like rifle through that stuff later. But sometimes you'll come across when you're in the dumpster, like the bags are ripped or torn and you have to look through them, right? Like this is your job. And so you're not going to take the ripped or torn bag and the loose leaf trash, you know, and get that into the car. So really um, you're digging through it in the rain, in the, you know, you've got Starbucks on your hands, you've got, you know, somebody's leftover lunch. So that is one of the uh, less glamorous parts of kind of the physical portions. Um, the other one I, I talk about is falling through the roof. Um, so many, many times when you're doing physical testing, this was more, I would say, um, years ago, right? A lot of times this particular vulnerability has been addressed in, in many build build codes and sites. But um, earlier on in my career when we did physicals, uh, you know, one of the things would be people would have server rooms and obviously they'd have controls and locks. And, um, you know, one of the ones we went through uh, we had gained access to the building, but we couldn't gain access to the server room. And it was one of the main objectives that we wanted to get to. Uh, so we, we basically hung out in a meeting room looking like we were consultants until it was time for the office to close. This was a multi-floor um, building and target. And so uh, we just looked like we belonged, you know, and we were uh, chilling in this meeting room until about the time when everybody started to leave. And outside of the server room was a small coffee. I wouldn't even call it a coffee table. It's just a stand that they put flowers on and things like that. And so um, our plan was to check to see if um, the drop ceiling, um, if there was a physical barrier for the walling of the server room all the way up to the real uh, plaster, or if the drop ceiling, we would be able to crawl over the doorframe. Um, and this this still happened, especially when people converted regular rooms into server rooms, right? They would they would change something into a server room, install AC and everything like this. But um, but you know it was never meant to be a secure facilities room. And so uh, we waited, and I don't know why I got picked because honestly I was the biggest guy. But whatever. So um, so I got picked by the team. So I get up on this little table and I pull myself up through the you know uh, move the tile. Pull, uh, move it over. I'm crawling, you know, um, on the drop ceiling. And usually, you're careful when you're you're crawling on these drop ceilings because um, they're those tiles are made of um, basically like plaster or like you know uh, not very strong material. I actually don't know what they're made of, but um, if you put any weight on them, they will crack in half. And so you make sure to try to put your weight on the supporting. Um, like metal uh, brackets that hold them in place. Uh, and that way you, you know, you don't fall. Um, but, uh, you know, luckily we had found that there was no physical separation between the walling of the server room and the outside hallway where, where we were. And I was able to go over the door frame and shimmy through a spot there. Um, but in my attempted shimmy, I placed my knee on the wrong part of the tile, or at least too far to the left or the right, you know, maybe an inch. Um, and the tile cracked, and I ended up falling through uh, the tile into uh, into the server room. Um, I fell uh, I felt kind of on my side-ish, uh, which was lucky because I didn't break anything. It just knocked the wind out of me. I, it was like somewhat on my butt and somewhat on my side, which you know I guess I could have broken a hit, but um, I got super lucky that I didn't get injured. Um, knocked the air out of me, and then you know the partition or the the door was like one place and it was one of those doors where you have like a glass window next to it so my buddies my other red team buddies are watching me through the glass and they're just laughing their butts off about you know i have just fallen and they're worried for me a little bit but honestly like they were they were giggling so hard um and so this is like another portion of you know red teaming is the hilarious and sometimes dangerous mistakes uh of like the physical portion right it's like um it's it's nuts and so yeah i was able to unlock the door from the inside 
and we got access, but um, not after a uh, not after a, a bruised uh, ego and and hip. So. <laughs> Yeah, and uh, having maybe attempted that activity myself before, you often find that's the dustiest place in the building as well. So you, you're not usually in a presentable yes. state after climbing through those ceiling voids. Nope, nope, <laughs> uh, absolutely not. <laughs> Fantastic. Yeah. So moving on from crawling through roof spaces and inflatable dolls onto uh, your experiences in leadership and management. So you've served as the Chief Security Officer at Ubisoft, uh, VP of Trust and Security at Bug Crowd. You're now the uh, Chief Information Security Officer and hacker in charge at your current company. What are the, the challenges and insights you've gained from those leadership roles and how are they informed by your, your penetration and offensive security background? You know, I love, um, I love offensive security and I think, that's, uh, I think that's that particular viewpoint lets me prioritize a security program, especially how I feel real risk is um across uh, you know an organization i feel like it gives me an edge there um so um in my time at hp uh that was one of my employers you know the last part of my role was in leadership so uh, i learned a lot at hp about building teams and what to do and what not to do um i hired some of the best people in the industry i built a a great team at HP. Um, we were like a startup inside of HP, so we were funded by, you know, big HP, but we were bringing in a lot of money doing consulting work. Uh, it was a group called Shadow Labs, and um, it was amazing. Um, so I learned a lot about building teams there, and um, and then when I left HP, I went to Bug Crowd, oh, and then I learned a whole bunch about startup leadership and building startup teams. Um, and uh, grew into more technical security leadership there, security program, understanding like a security program, especially how it differs from a big company to a small company. Um, and then I left uh, Bug Crowd to take my first kind of debut big, big CISO role, big, big security leader role at Ubisoft because um, I'm a huge gamer, huge nerd. Um, and, you know, I wanted to marry video gaming and security. Um, and so I was able to go into Ubisoft having this context from an offensive security side to reprioritize the program, reorganize some stuff, really get them on better footing. Um, but I was also exposed to several, you know, security breaches. When you're that big of a company, you get exposed to, um, you know, like breaches of all sizes, basically, uh, and incidents of all sizes. And I uh, got a lot of exposure to the blue, the blue side of the house as well since i had been mostly offensive based i got a lot of exposure to SOC and uh, threat intelligence and detection engineering and all that stuff worked with some really really great people at ubisoft so i feel like my career has i've been so blessed because i've gotten exposure to pretty much everything um, and i would say the combination of that soup um, has led me to a place now where um, i feel like i could go into you know, any situation, any business, big or small, startup, cloud native, you know, um, not cloud native, you know, legacy. And I could probably figure out, you know, like how to design a good security program that's prioritized in the correct way. So that, that's usually what I tell people. I feel like, um, you know, having those skills um, allows me to do that, which allows you to save budget, not waste time, build great teams. And I mean, I could, I could talk for hours on each one of those topics, but, uh, but yeah, those are, those are some of the things I think that I came out with and I specialize in. One of the things you mentioned there was that obviously during your time there, they were Ubisoft a big target and suffered, you know, different breaches. The one that jumps to mind for me is obviously the attack from Lapsus. And while the, you know, the threat actors weren't able to inflict the same amount of damage they had done on previous victims, it must have still been a, a very stressful time for you. How, how did you first become aware of it? And, and what did it feel like at the time going through that? Yeah, so the um, so lapses incident was uh, was one of the bigger ones I think that I dealt with at, at Ubisoft, and um, it's one that I actually have a talk on, um, a conference talk that I do today. It's called Tales from the Breach: um, uh, A Crash Course in Modern Adversaries, and I did it at RSA, um, and it is kind of like a, it answers this question of, of basically what happened. But specifically, you know, um, I got a call. One day, I think it was a Thursday, maybe um, a Wednesday or Thursday. I can't remember exactly the day, um, but I got a call at like 6 a.m. And it started out as a um, a page call from IT saying, "Hey, there's downtime. Basically, there's a, there's an issue. We 
you know, there's some downtime with some of our servers, we're looking into it. So it wasn't a security issue right away, but, you know, process and procedure has you attach, you know, someone from the SOC as soon as something like that happens as a security attache to, you know, anything that causes downtime. And so, um, you know, I got that call at six, was up talking to other leaders, because um, it was a significant down, um, it was a significant enough incident causing it significant enough downtime. And then, you know, probably two or three hours into, you know, the downtime and IT and security and the SOC working on it, um, security realized that it was a security incident rather than just like some kind of technical error, right? Which would which had been the running um, prevailing theory for a little while. Um, and so uh, at that point, you have to mobilize the team. Um, basically, you have playbooks for different types of uh, incidents, uh, or hopefully you do. Hopefully you have a playbook and you've tabletopped it and stuff like that. So um, you mobilize a lot of your blue team. Um, the next thing you do is you bring in backup, depending on the scope of the breach, right? So you bring in an, uh, an extra third-party consultancy, which you have to pre-budget in and talk to your leadership about. Like if something like this happens, you're going to bring in like a Mandiant or a Microsoft Dart or something like that. I actually don't think they're called Microsoft Dart anymore, but Microsoft's advanced, you know, kind of forensics and detection um, team. And that backs up your already stellar blue team, right? Because when you have a breach like that, it's not about, you know, if a, a consultancy is better. It's, it's that you need a lot of help um, during that time. And, and you never have enough staff to deal with something like that. So you start mobilizing, you start doing the investigation and the response work. Um, obviously, there's a whole methodology associated to incident response. Um, and so, uh, you know, you kick that off. But yeah, it's very stressful for the whole team. Um, you know, in, in our case at Ubisoft, Lapsus brought us down um, for a little bit, which uh, for a gaming company is the worst thing that could happen, actually. It, it actually changed my whole perspective on um, how I design a security program up to that point. Uh, I had been designing security programs to protect us from um, exploits, right? And I had prioritized, at least in my mind, where exploits were um, that could cause the most damage. What I hadn't been prioritizing for a ton was um, the eventuality of downtime, right? And how how that is actually the worst thing that happen that can happen to any business, honestly. Um, and many CISOs actually uh, don't categorize or prioritize their programs um, to include that, right? They they think the way I thought, which is in terms of you know oh you know I could have a, a small data breach of uh, or a small um, breach of you know, confidentiality, confidentiality or, or privacy of my users. And while that's horrible and nobody wants that, um, it actually costs you as a security leader a lot less than having your websites go down and your services not running. And so um, it was a, an eye-opening experience. Yeah, it's, it's that balance, you know, when we talk about the core tenets of information security, it's the confidentiality, the integrity and the availability. And often yes. people are focusing on the first two and... Yep. But actually, when it comes to the business keeping running and money flowing through systems and doing all these things, you know, we've seen some of the breaches against like Colonial Pipeline and things like that, where it wasn't the systems that pumped the oil that were disrupted, but actually because they didn't didn't have the ability to sell the oil to customers and communicate with them, then suddenly everything else grinds to a halt and we see fuel shortages and things like that. So, yeah, that availability component is, is always a, an interesting one to discuss. And the, the thing that I really like with your response, you know, some... Some organizations and some CISOs will panic and bury their head in the sand about it and try and do damage limitation. And what I liked with, with your approach was you got out there, like you say, you've got this talk, Tales from the Breach. It was presented at RSA. Uh, you, you reached out to other CISOs and you came and said, hey, here's the things that we've learned about these modern threat actors and the techniques they use. So maybe you could share like you know, some high-level thoughts. I know secrets management is is one of the things you've talked about there and finding those. So maybe you could give some people some pointers on what they should be thinking about. Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, so I mean, exactly what you said happened. Um, during the tail end of the incident and um, the aftermath of it, you know, I had a great team at Ubisoft, uh, tremendously talented people. I had, you know, I had both landed in there with tremendously talented people and had hired even even more people onto that team. I had a great budget for a security program, multi, multi millions of dollars, right? And I had all of the products and bells and whistles you could probably wish for that many companies wish that they had um, as part of their security program. Um, and we still got owned, basically. <laughs> um, and so, you know, what I, what I ended up doing was 
what I would do, you know, as part of a hacking engagement or something like that, I, I went out and did recon, right? And in, in this in this world, it was basically jumping in every Slack channel that I was a part of. You know, there's there's several CISO Slacks that are invite only that, you know, when you're in this leadership kind of group, you get invited to. And I ended up going into these Slacks with other companies who, you know, were affected by this threat actor or threat actor similar to it. And just getting their phone numbers and calling them and having these hour long conversations with these CISOs about how did this happen? Like, you know, like where, where were our blind spots in, um, in these, you know, in these incidents. And so I must've talked to, um, well, I, I would say I had about 15 meaningful phone calls with people who had dealt with this threat actor specifically because, um, you know, they had a laundry list of people they broke into Microsoft, Okta, Nvidia, Samsung, um, a ton of companies, um, and some that are undocumented as well. Um, but people came forward to talk about um, kind of what happened. And so I started building a dossier um, with threat intelligence and IOCs, basically, um, even though I was the CISO. But uh, I just didn't want anybody to have to go through kind of what I went through, um, which was super painful. And so I started to get a picture of, you know, where our deficiencies were with through these conversations and through sharing the threat until with the rest of these slacks as well. Um, and we saved a couple companies where um, they were in the first stages of initial access from this threat actor. Um, and the IOC package and the threat intel package that we built at Ubisoft actually was um, used in Microsoft's uh, verbatim in one of their blogs um, for uh, their bulletin on this threat actor. Um, and so it was really great to kind of give back. So that was one thing I learned throughout the process is that um, you're not alone. Usually these threat actors have targeted many people before you and you can, you know, one of the, the great things about the industry is that people are willing to help each other. And um, and so we, we got a lot of information we're able to share and, and help a lot of people. Um, technically, you know, the, the things that I learned a lot about, you know, through Lapsus was uh, the intricacies of, you know, uh, a Microsoft dominant, um, you know, network, right? And, um, you know, how two-factor authentication works, how cookies work, you know, kind of how the dark net market works. And so, you know, um, the threat actors and, you know, in our case, bought the, the bought they're in. They bought it from a dark web market. Um, at this time, it was Genesis Market. And then they used um, that credential and not just the credential, but the cookie um, associated to one of our users um, to start their initial access. And then they pivoted through some very unique and novel ways and, and then eventually ended up on the internal network. Um, one of the things, you know, out of the incident that was um, very apparent was that once they get past your hardened armor um, of your organization and they land on the inside, um, you know, they were not the type of threat actor that installed a lot of tools. Um, and this is very prevalent for, um, very prevalent for threat actors these days. They will use what's called living off the land techniques um, to not install any software to do the things they need to do to accomplish their goals. Lapsus went even a, a step further. Is once they had access to the internal network, um, they didn't even use the, the traditional, what we call in the red teaming industry, like law bins or, or anything like that. What they did is they sat on the inside network and they did this to us and several other companies and they, they just learned about the network. They went to every place documentation was. So they went to your confluences, your JIRAs, um, they looked through every access they had of Slack and uh, Teams and you know OneNote, um, and they went uh, they went everywhere they could to first understand your network. They didn't want to alert the SOC at all, um, and all of that just looks like regular user traffic when people are visiting those sites. And even if they're authenticated, you know a lot of times there's you know web exploits, but you know no one's ever going to see that on your internal network to just read documentation, right? Um, that maybe they shouldn't have privileges to. But anyway, they spent a lot of time learning about our network, you know, and trying to understand it better than we understood it. Um, and they would collect all this information. What they were looking for eventually is someone to hard code a password. Um, and so there are several technologies um, that they were looking at into, uh, you know, into, and finally they, you know, in our case, they found one um, that allowed them to escalate privileges and they didn't even use it as soon as they found it. They waited and they did more research. And then all at once when they had decided that they had done enough research, um, they would use their credential, escalate privileges um, quickly and then try to go after their main objective, which for us was to bring us down. Um, and so actually I see a lot more threat actors, you know, kind of pivoting to this style 
um, of, of hacking, right? It's it's not glamorous. It's not some custom C2 that a nation state is using, right? It's um, it's something that looks like normal user traffic, so it's very hard to defend against. And um, one of the defenses, you know, that we had to come up with, and I had to also interview other CISOs was was how to build a secrets management program, uh, because you know we we had some secret storage in the right place. We had some components of it, but really a holistic secrets management program. Um, is something that not a lot of companies have, have built yet, right? Even even to this day. Um, and so we really had to figure out first how to stop the bleeding, right? Um, you know, basically developers had already committed secrets into repositories, documentation, the staff was sharing, you know, all this stuff everywhere. And you could be any company and, and you could tell me all day that, oh, we don't do this, but I can guarantee you it happens inside of your organization, right? The, the sharing of secrets and passwords um, is, you know, if you don't have a program to address that, it's, it's happening even without you knowing. Um, so the first step was to stop the bleeding and identify where all those had done. And so we, you know, tasked our red team and our blue teams internally to scan things. And, um, you know, we focused on repos first, and then we moved out to documentation. And then we moved out to how are we going to deal with private messaging and, and things like that. And then, you know, then you have to move into prevention, in which case, you know, you have to build a way for people to securely share secrets because, you you know, obviously you need passwords sometimes to execute, you know, different services or you need certificates or you need API keys, you know, baked into code. And so, like, how do you do that? Well, you use a vault type technology, right, um, to give them a, a secure place to do it. Um, and then also when they try to commit it to one of your repos, um, you try to block that at the server side. And so we built a program. And so it's it's basically, uh, you know, uh, prevent, detect, and respond, and then educate. And those were the four pillars of our secrets management program. Um, and it still exists at Ubisoft to this day. Uh, our DevSecOps team, our DevSecOps team runs, uh, runs it, quarterbacks it. Our red team helps with it. Uh, well, not my red team anymore. I love those folks, but I'm not there anymore. But uh, yeah, so th those teams work it, and um, and we had to build that. And then when I went out into the industry and started talking to CISOs about it, uh, they didn't have anything that mature or um, or fleshed out, at least until like you know like how you do it. And uh, it wasn't until I really had talked to some people at like um, I think one of the companies was um, was a secrets management company, and I talked to them about like this model. They were like. That is absolutely what we tell people. We've never codified it into that, you know, that visualization or talking about it before. So, um, you know, people are now starting to realize that this has to be a program that you have to invest in. And um, I'm glad about that because it's 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 really a big part of of how most threat actors, once they break into, you know, once they have initial access, um, what they look to do and, and how they look to escalate privileges is these hard coded secrets on on the internal. That's really really valuable insight, and I think. You know, you're absolutely right. These are things that people kind of know about, but they're not really high enough up on their radar. They're not thinking of them in a joined up way. You know, the whole sort of shift towards identity security, and we often still think about endpoint security and exploits mm -hmm. uh, rather than, you know, users being compromised, what access they have. Um, one of the things you mentioned there was obviously just defining, codifying things. So I, I know we're nearly at the end of our time here today, but one of the things that always pops into my head when I hear your name is the bug hunters methodology. Mm -hmm. So I was just curious how that came about, what problems you were trying to solve there by kind of codifying some of the methodology around hunting for bugs. Yeah, I mean, I, um, I mean, this, this is rewinding a bit to, you know, my, um, my offensive, you know, days and I'm still offensive today. I mean, I lead a red, I lead a red team serve red team as a service company. So, um, but yeah, I mean, basically bug bounty was starting to grow, uh, you know, and I, I had known some leaders at bug crowd and had been participating in bug bounties while I was the uh, VP of our group at HP. And so this is at the point where I had, um, I had worked my way up into the leaderboard number one position on bug crowds leaderboard and um, was pretty much addicted to bug bounties at that point, spending all my free time um, hacking these companies because you, you have to think of back in the day, um, the only other way you could work on other work was through what we call moonlighting in the industry, and you would have to get a you know a contract set up. And the advent of Bug Bounty with HackerOne and BugCrowd, um, it was amazing. You could just make extra money in your free time if you found stuff, and uh, you know the companies wouldn't have you go through this long legal process. It was it was okayed through the intermediary, and so um, so it was really fun. And you know what I started to realize is that penetration testing and, and what my training had been up to then had been good, 
but it's not it was nothing compared to what the methodology was for someone who had to succeed to eat was and what i mean by that is bug hunters don't get paid unless they find something right and so their methodology is focused on finding you know like really impactful bug um you know vulnerabilities on these sites especially on the external and so i got you know a crash course into like hardcore external testing um and uh you know this was all at the time this was burgeoning during the blogging and and golden what i would call twitter years and so um i would collect tips and tricks and i was kind of the first person to take a year's worth of research on all these tips and tricks of people i was you know like peers with in this bug bounty scene and codify it into um, a reconnaissance methodology and a web hacking methodology and so my first talk at defcon was called um how to shot web um, with a little Spider-Man meme on it. And that was the first version of the Bug Hunters methodology. And then every year now, what I do is I, I collect bookmarks and research from talented people and tips and tricks of my own. Um, and uh, and I basically do updates to that. So we're on version five, I think, this year of the Bug Hunters methodology. And it, is, it has grown into uh, a full-scale workshop. And you know I can do two hours on it and train people on reconnaissance methodology for red teaming and bug bounty hunting and um, uh, application analysis on how to hack web apps and how to approach web apps for bug bounties and red teamers. So um, I've been doing that ever since. And, you know, I've been many years I've presented at DEF CON, many years presented it at um, different, you know, conferences and stuff like that. And people seem to enjoy it. So, yeah. Yeah, I just think it's a fantastic resource to get out in the world and have all those things in one place and kind of a methodology around it and a, a clear start and an end point so you're not just completely overwhelmed and daunted by, well, oh, what yeah. do I do? What tools do I do? Where do I start? Yep. How do I get going? So th those things yep. are just fantastic. And, you know, many thanks for you for putting out those and many other things over, over the years for the community. It really, really is appreciated. Yep. Um, we're almost out of time here today, but do you just want to share what you're up to these days and what uh, you're doing over at Budobot? Yeah, absolutely. So at, at Buttobot, um, we are kind of uh, basically putting out there into the world a, a red team as a service. Um, I have a, a team that I've built there of exceptional offensive security engineers. And um, really what we're trying to do is is bring the type of testing that, um, you know, I would want, you know, uh, to simulate, you know, like a Lapsus or an Egregor or some of the other um, like, you know, type tier of um, threat actors. And so we do full scope testing, which is um, manual testing. We're not automating, it's not software. We're using real people to do real red team work. Uh, we include threat intel, attack surface management. So we're looking on the dark web for credentials, um, live credentials of your employees. Um, we're finding all of your assets like I would, you know, in a bug bounty program um, and giving you that information. We do phishing and vishing. Um, I don't do the vishing, but um, my uh, my team does. And uh, and we package all this up, this full scope red team testing um, over a year long service. And we sell this to our clients um, of which, you know, we have a few. Uh, we work a lot with the government as well. So uh, three-letter agencies and, and do this work and um, yeah it's really fun I, I love red teaming because it brings um, some extra stuff uh, that you know general penetration testing and bug bounty didn't and so I get to learn about you know the current malware dev in fact I have a post going out you know a couple minutes about my adventures into learning how Mac implants work and you know how Mac C2 works and stuff like that and so um, I am a lifelong offensive security learner, so I love this scene, and I'm trying to build a great team at Buttobot. And if you're you're interested in working in the offensive security scene, we'll be we'll be hiring pretty soon for engineers. So if anybody uh, wants to come talk to me, I'll, I'll be on Twitter. So that's great. And why can people see that post you're about to put out? It'll be on my Twitter. So I do all my information blast through Twitter. So it's uh, Twitter.com/slash/jhaddix. J-h-a-d-d-i-x. Um, and I post all of my research and thoughts and uh, cool stuff I find on, on my Twitter pretty pretty constantly. And then eventually it ends up in my newsletter, which is called Executive Offense, which is um, which is an intersection between my offensive mind and kind of security leadership and how they blend together. And it's a, a newsletter that I put out every week. That's great. Well, thank you very much for sharing that. And unfortunately, that's all we have time for on this episode of The Adventures of Alice and Bob. I'd like to thank our guest today, Jason Haddix, for sharing some of his journey with us today from 486s and fake IDs to CISO and securing secrets with some blow-up dolls and falling through ceilings along the way. Jason continues to inspire uh, a lot of us in the world of offensive security and bug bounty programs through his leadership, his knowledge, and his primarily his desire to share all this with the wider community. And as I said earlier, 
And as Jason just mentioned, it's really worth checking out Jay Haddix on Twitter, on GitHub to see more of what Jason gets up to. I'd also like to shout out super producer Ben and the crew at Beyond Trust who make this podcast happen. I'm James Maud, and this has been The Adventures of Alice and Bob. Thanks for listening to The Adventures of Alice and Bob podcast. Don't forget to rate, review, and share this with colleagues that'll get value from it. 